1: Welcome to the Transition Wild podcast, the home for those looking for expertise and inspiration on all things Western big game hunting. I'm your host, Adam Parr, and you're listening to episode number 21, where we talk with Clint Stout on his 2017 Alaska moose hunt. Hello, how's everyone doing? Hope you're having a great day. Thanks again for tuning in to the Transition Wild podcast on the Sportsman's Nation podcast network. I have been kind of just prepping for elk season. It's getting, getting down to the wire now. We're only about, uh, about a month out. So it's, it's close. I've been shooting my bow a lot more. Everything's tuned, dialed, just kind of working on my yardages, uh, practicing those longer distances and, and just putting a lot of reps through the bow. So that feels good. Um, doing some scouting stuff, getting, getting prepped on that end, been checking trail cameras. I have, a few bulls on camera. One is gonna be a branch antler bull. The others are kind of smaller spikes. But um, you know, cool to see lots of cows in the area where I've got the cameras currently. So that gives me, you know, confidence for more of the rut. And um, you know, could be some some good action there here towards the middle um, late part of September if those cows stick around. So that's exciting. Uh, I've shared some of those photos on my Instagram and, um, you know, hopefully I'll check the cards here again soon and, and find some more bulls in the area. I'm I'm also going to switch up some spots too, and just try to cover some more ground that way and get a few more pictures. But anyways, it's, I'm having fun. And then I'm just been training for my half marathon. That's, uh, about three weeks out now. And been running a lot, trying to get prepped. I'm not looking to set any records. I'm just looking to finish and um, put myself to the test that way. But that's that's been it's been fun. It's been interesting, and I can't wait to get it over with, <laughs> to be honest. But hey, I'm I'm gonna be in good shape for the mountains, which which feels good. Gives me more confidence for the fall. Uh, just got back from a trip home to Michigan. Went and visited family, spent some time on the water and lakes. Felt good to get back to my roots. I, I definitely miss it, but um, the West is is now the new home. But uh, always good to get back and spend some time on the lakes. There's nothing like northern Michigan when, uh, when summertime rolls around. Kid Rock said it best. <laughs> All right, uh, what's going on? So today we have... Clint Stout on the line. I met Clint this past winter at a trade show and just a cool dude and we talk about his last year's Alaska moose hunt and a moose hunt to the Yukon to Alaska has always been a dream hunt of mine and we have yet to have anybody on the podcast to talk about a moose hunt. So this has been a cool episode because it's exciting for me. It's, it's the adventure. It's the unknown. It's, it's the thrill. It's, it's a a really cool story. Clint knows, knows this stuff. Um, really successful hunter and they were able to have success on this hunt and I'll, I'll let it play out, but it's, it's a fun story. We talk about tactics, kind of what he did to prepare the details of the hunt, what the conditions were like. Um, you know, just a lot of, Cool stories and a lot of information jam-packed into an hour. So hope you guys enjoy that. If you like what you're hearing, definitely go to sportsmansnation.com. You can subscribe that way. You can subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, all that stuff. And if if you, if you like the episodes, leave us a good review. Leave us that five-star review. That would be much, much appreciated. Last but not least, head over to transitionwell.com. Go get the latest freebie on the site if you subscribe i will send you the colorado beginner elk hunting guide and that's a 10 page guide that i've put together that covers scouting preparation where to hunt hunt when to hunt and a lot of information and articles kind of jam-packed into this one little guide so to get you started get you off and running so definitely go to transitionwild.com, subscribe i will send you the colorado beginner elk hunting guide for free all right, without further ado, let's get Clint Stout on the line. Well, here we are. I'm sitting here via Skype with Clint Stout. How you doing today, man?
0: Another day in paradise nice <laughs> here in Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah, you're you're still at work, man. I, I see you still got your uh your work shirt on.
0: Yeah, still uh blessed to be working in my home office, but yeah, still, still trying to finish up some contracts here, work for uh, Whitetail Properties Real Estate. So uh, long days are good days.
1: I bet. I bet. So I, I'm sure you do a pretty good mix of kind of office work and then you're out in the field. Uh, what would you say that split is? Probably like 50-50 or 60-40? What's that look like?
0: Probably, probably 60-40, I would say, as far as uh, 60 being outside and hiking properties, uh, 40% paperwork. Um it, it, obviously you'd probably like to be hiking in the woods more. <laughs> there, there's a lot of paperwork involved. Unfortunately, I think Pennsylvania has the most pages per listing or sale than any other state that we're licensed in. So really? I'm blessed with the paperwork.
1: Oh, <laughs> I'm sure that's the fun part of the job, right? Uh, stacks yeah. and stacks of paperwork and things to sign and make sure nothing gets messed up. I've I've, I've been down that road with a house or two, but uh, land, uh, that would be a whole nother game, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, house is still like I closed on a house this morning and they have way more paperwork just because of disclosures and stuff. So, yeah, that's, okay. a, that's a pain. But, yeah, being able to, to go out and hike properties, whether you're looking at a potential listing or showing a listing – Um, it's it's great because you get to learn a lot of different land you see things and and maybe learn what's more important whether it's in a realm of learning how to hunt a property or what's important as far as you as a recreational person so that's a good part of the job
1: for sure for sure how long have you been doing real estate
0: uh my family's kind of been into real estate on, you know, on another level—not a licensed realtor, but buying and selling land, you know, as long as I can remember. But officially, I've been licensed, I believe, in Ohio now four years, uh, where I started with Whitetail Properties in Eastern Ohio, and now I've been in PA for—it'll uh, be two years in September.
1: Oh, nice! Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Lots of fun. And uh, so you're base—you're based in Pennsylvania. Where are you located again?
0: Uh, it's Brookville, Pennsylvania. So it's a pretty good uh, location. Uh, we're, we're I'm about an hour from Ohio. I'm right on Interstate 80. And I'm um, about an hour and a half north of Pittsburgh and about two hours from Erie. So pretty good central location kind of for Western PA where the higher deer populations are.
1: Yeah, for sure. I've when i lived in michigan i hunted that southeast ohio a few times public land and although i never killed one i, I definitely saw some good bucks and it was really cool hunting really tough hunting because it was it's just all big steep timber you know big woodlots and tough wind to hunt with all those squirrels.
0: yeah yeah the, the drafts too you know in the, in the morning and evening you know you hear about it out west maybe stalking elk or something but uh, the, the little drafts here can, boy, they can mess up a bow hunter quick.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's almost like learning an individual, like, draw or an individual property. It's not necessarily like what the wind is doing that day or what the weatherman says. There's so many variables to certain properties, which I'm sure you get to see a lot of walking a lot of different uh, parcels and, and kind of learn in the lay of the land. I'm sure you get a little bit further intel on that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the things that's, can be frustrating when I'm showing properties because I point out certain things like that that mean way more than a potential buyer realizes. And I think a lot of people take that kind of stuff for granted uh, and overlook it, where that can be a major factor in, in a property and why it's so unique where a certain food plot is or a certain patch of oak trees or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah, it makes total sense. Well, cool. Well, um, yeah, it's been, been a few months since we, since we met, we met at the great American outdoor show in Pennsylvania this past winter and got to kind of catch up and share some stories. You were just a couple booths down at the six Sight gear booth and, um, yeah, just a lot of, (laughs) it's funny at those shows. It just turns into one big, uh, hunting story, just shooting the shit. It's, it's pretty fun.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's why I love going to shows. I'm actually going to a show for them here coming up in Alabama and, little over a week and uh, it's fun meeting different people just like us meeting you know there's so many people that are similar and sharing stories and and then uh, it's learning you know i I, there's a lot of people you you get in the industry and it's uh you know uh, boasting of a story but in a way sometimes you're learning as 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 that story comes in yeah you learn from everybody it's it's cool
1: yeah yeah for sure so you're doing the uh What is that show? That's in Birmingham. That's the World Deer Expo? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, Quiet Cat's exhibiting. I'm not going to that show. I wish, not wish, but um, I'm going to hold the fort down (laughs) here in Colorado and and let let some other guys go out and do that one. So I I won't see you there, but um, Quiet Cat will be there. So if you go see those guys, tell them I said hi.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely swing by. Steven
1: will probably be riding his around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. that was one thing I remember about the the show. Steven couldn't get off that bike, and by the end of the week, he just was like, oh, I'm buying this thing and took it home to Texas.
0: <laughs> yeah, I helped wrap it up you know, so he can get it on a plane.
1: I was one to help wrap it up. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool. So um, you've been in Montana recently. You just got back from a, a trip there. What were you doing out in, in those uh, parts of the mountains?
0: Yeah, it was uh kinda cool. I got uh, a real good friend of mine, Paul Wiedencoff, uh had asked uh, his friends drew they'd all been putting in a for a permit on the Smith River. And uh, one of the guys drew and you, each person could bring a friend and uh he invited me along and it was cool cool 'cause been been blessed to uh to stay in a tent I'm like I think it's forty two states, but I've never been to Montana. Really? So, yeah. Wow. So that was my first trip to Montana and yeah, uh, the Smith River's a, a you know a real good trout stream. Um, so, you know, the, the goal was to be trout fishing, but first two days it rained straight, and the trout fishing went downhill real rapidly.
1: <laughs> oh, I bet probably got pretty muddied and and uh, pretty pretty fierce water flow there for a while. I'm sure.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was totally uh, totally muddy and ripping. And Paul Paul did real well the first day, and then after that, it was just like. Hardly anybody was catching anything, but, you know, just like any trip, I mean, that can happen, um, you know, whether you're in Colorado or Alaska, you know, the weather, you're at the mercy of the weather and you have to make the best out of it. And I think we all made the best out of it. It was a good camping trip and cooking yeah. food and pottery, just like those shows.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an adventure, right? I mean, I'm sure I'm sure the fishing wasn't as good as what you had hoped, but, man, anytime you can get to the west and, and float down a river and do some camping and just... Soak in those views. I'm, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure it's not a bad
0: day. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah, you know, I like change. I, you know, I'm stuck, stuck here probably forever. I, you know, feel like this is my home place for good, but I definitely have to visit other places and get that. There's nothing like the smell of the Douglas fir and and, yeah. and the wind blowing. Yeah, yeah. Get out and see it.
1: Yeah, for sure. You've you've taken quite a few kind of adventure big game hunts, right? I mean, a, a decent number of public land or Western hunts. Uh, how, yeah. what, what Kind of give us a little background on that. Like when did you start getting into Western hunting and some of these adventure trips?
0: Yeah. I, yeah, I can say that I guess officially never been on a guided hunt. They're all do it yourself type of hunts. Now in Northern Canada, I did go on a caribou hunt where there's a, a guide that's there at the camp, but he doesn't actually go out and hunt with you. So that would be the closest to a guide trip but um i guess got into it I, I the first time i remember my dad came home i think i was three and i can still remember it um he came home from quebec his boss had asked him to go on a trip and he had a caribou head and he had a big salmon and i mean it clicked then my mom still laughs because <laughs> i would be carrying sticks around saying they were caribou antlers but I guess that started it. Uh, I just you know, had to be hunting all over from that point on. I uh, was blessed to uh, go to college to wrestle at the University of Wyoming, and that kind of started my Western drive. I uh, went out there to wrestle. Didn't finish there. Uh, had some disagreements with the coach. And went somewhere else, but I got to be there for two years and got the Western Mountain Hunting Bug at that point. Then.
1: Yeah, yeah, I bet. And and did you grow up in Pennsylvania? And is that kind of where you cut your teeth?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm from Pennsylvania, and obviously, you know, most know Pennsylvania has a huge hunting tradition. We had at one point we had like 1.2 million hunters <laughs> the first of their rifle season. Uh, so, and you know that. You yeah. Know, from where- um, yeah, Michigan uh, and Pennsylvania
1: are always like one and two battling it out for most uh, most hunters, and I think most uh, four points taken per year, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we are the, the, definitely the top two states for that. <laughs> so that was just kind of something I grew up with and, and uh, you know, went to, went to Wyoming and got into mountain hunting, did a lot of uh, uh, mule deer hunting, stock, spotting stock along the uh, canyons uh, near uh, the Seminole Reservoir. And, uh, that was a total different experience than even hunting out where I hunt now in Colorado, just cause it's different terrain and they all have their own, uh, learning curve to how you're going to hunt there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. So did you, did you, um, grow up with hunting in the family? Like, was it your dad that kind of got you into it? Was it your grandpa, uncle, what did that look like?
0: Yeah, it was my dad, my mom's side, nobody even hunts. Um, my dad definitely was the one that got me into it. Uh, you know, he had trapped and hunted all his life and, and uh, you know, was was the drive for it. And, you know, definitely he was a big spot and stock guy. I think that was one thing compared to a lot of PA hunting tradition. Um, he wasn't a tree stand guy and he was a spot and stock. And so that kind of definitely maybe led in my path of of hunting big game and, and eventually being an assistant guy in Alaska Uh, when I was younger, just because of that spot and stock hunting style.
1: Got it. Yeah, that's so cool. Yeah, when I lived in Michigan, I never really kind of expressed interest in spot and stock just because you're hunting smaller properties, and it's just really not set up for it. Um, You can do a certain extent, but most of the time, you're so concerned about the pressure and, and just keeping it low that you never do it. But when I moved to Colorado or started taking my Western trips or hunting Kansas, that really cut my teeth to To kind of go after them on foot and and roll the dice, I guess. Uh, You 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 always have tons of land, um, public land. You screw something up, you go on to the next one. So that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, it definitely has a different uh, level of confidence in that too. You know, I feel like you if you're hunting back here, whether it's Iowa or Pennsylvania, if there's one buck you've singled out and you hunt it, you you blow the shot at night. Your chance of ever seeing them again are probably a lot slimmer, but especially that night where it's yeah, like you say, out there Alaska or wherever you're up oh, onto the next, onto yep. the next one. There's always going to be another one over the other ridge. hopefully.
1: <laughs> yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Um, well, that's cool. Thanks for uh, giving us a little bit of background and on what you do and where you grew up and how you got into hunting. There, it's always always interesting to hear. But um, you know, really, why I wanted to have you on today is to kind of cover your your moose hunt which I believe was last year. You went on that last year, right?
0: Yeah. Last September. Okay. Oh, yeah.
1: Got it. Got it. And, um, so I guess, I guess you were talking about it a little bit, but, um, did you kind of want to get into or go on your own moose hunt? Cause you said you had done some guiding, uh, years past in, in Alaska.
0: Yeah. So what kind of, just a quick story of, of the turn of events there. I'd, I had guided, I had worked for hunting guide basically from the time I was 14, until I was 19 in the summers, and then, of course, when I was 18, I was able to get my assistant guide license and guided just all sheep, because that was the only thing it was in before I had to get to college, I missed the first week of college. Uh, <laughs> week.
1: Hey, but it's uh, worth it, right?
0: Yeah, it was worth it. So I had had somewhat of a background and still talked to the hunting guide, the concessions that I had dealt with, and uh, Paul good friend who I went to Montana with met him working. I used to be with Sika um, as an ambassador and met him at a show through them. And, uh, he heard my story of God. And he said, Hey, I, I want to do a, do yourself moose hunt. What do you, what do you think? Do you think you could, you could arrange that? And I was like, well, yeah, I, you know, my dad had done them and I have all the whitewater rafts and all the equipment that you need. It's just a matter of figuring out where we're going to go and then logistically getting there. And, uh, he said, well, you know, see what you can do. Let's do it. And, you know, there it was, whatever. I think it was probably about seven months later, my my best friend and I were getting on a plane to, to, to go meet Paul and his best friend to hunt in Alaska. So I uh, was able to arrange it. It was a full do-it-yourself hunt. Um, you know, had done the research and made sure it was what we needed to do.
1: Yeah, got it. I mean, I'm sure there's a ton of logistics that go into all this, and I kind of want to cover you know all that on selecting an area and preparing and and the hunt itself um but you mentioned you brought brought a buddy with you what's what i guess what qualifies somebody to go into the alaskan bush diy uh for a, a big game hunt um how do you how do you choose that partner that seems like that'd be a pretty important step to make sure you've got somebody just as committed as you are
0: yeah yeah, that's definitely a big factor that I would tell anybody when they're, they're getting ready because, you know, a lot of people want to do a trip like that and then ask about it. You definitely want to have someone uh, that you trust and that, you know, um, when you get out there, it's a whole different element. You have to realize uh, that jiving and decisions, it's it's not cut and dry, I selling real estate and stuff I've done, nothing's ever been real cut and dry. And so if you have people that have, have, have had a normal job, it's nine to five, and are used to set plans, I would say the biggest thing is when you go out there, make sure that you're both on the same page to where everything isn't cut and dry. Yeah, Things can change real quick and be very important decisions, and it might not be what you anticipate. And so you want to have someone that you know isn't going to necessarily be fighting with you about those kind of decisions. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah yeah you want to make sure you're both on the on the same page there and kind of know i guess that know what you're getting into now had he been to alaska before or was this going to be his first trip
0: so paul paul had been to alaska he was a fishing guide up there on and off over the years um but my my best friend justin had never been to alaska he had actually moved to wyoming and lived out there and hunted with me out there a little bit but uh, had never been to Alaska, so it was definitely going to be his first time, uh, to be up there and do that kind of thing. But yeah as a whole, and kind of back to that core, whether it was not even a hunting relation, uh, you know, I'd floated with him on some very serious whitewater, and you build that trust level. And it's kind of my uncle was a Navy SEAL, and he always brings up the SEAL relationship that they have full trust. We all know that now because there's so many movies about it, but you have to have full trust in that person when you're out there and trust the decision that they make and vice versa.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a whole different level as, I guess you get that to a little bit when you're hunting elk, but Alaska or, or someplace where you're dealing with grizzlies and uh, dangerous conditions, potentially flipping a raft, uh, getting lost, uh, no help, I guess, to a certain extent. I mean, that's a whole nother element that, most people don't experience or haven't experienced before. So I can see why the emphasis would be very high on, on making sure you have the right, uh, people and I guess the right gear as well.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. And that goes into the planning thing, you know, um, to, to when you start planning, you know, the first thing is you've got to get a flight out to where you're going to go regardless of the method of hunting you're going to use. Uh, we obviously did a, a raft trip. So it was a float hunt. Uh, A lot of people fly in. You can fly into just a lake and hunt around a lake for a week um, or just fly in the mountains and hike like you do for elk, but you you have to have confidence and do your research. Know that your pilot's a good pilot and they're going to get you where you need to be, and that's probably the the first thing. You know, When you go to pick an area, uh, it's very neat up there. The the wildlife officers are also the, the police. And they'll give you way more information than I think a lot of our Eastern people are aware of. Mm, awesome. uh, they'll help you and give you information about the species and the biologists you can call them and they'll tell you where they've been seeing them. And, and so you can get a lot of information and I would encourage everybody to reach out uh, to, to the, the agencies to see where are the best areas and, and you know what's safe to get to and so on.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So is that what, did you just kind of start with a blank slate and just strictly go off of what uh, information you were gathering from these officers or was it kind of like, I knew I kind of wanted to check out this area based on what you had experienced or been to before, maybe referrals and then kind of fine tuned from there or um, which kind of route did you go just blank slate and learn and, and then choose?
0: Yeah. So that was, that was one thing when I, when I had worked up there, I would worked at a moose camp up near uh, Pananon, and so I picked an area where I knew that there was a ton of moose. Yeah. Uh, and I started researching on it, and no pilots would fly into there because the guy I would worked for, unfortunately, there had passed away. Someone else had a concession, and they didn't want anybody landing there. And so mm. <laughs> it was kind of interesting experience. It went from an area where I thought I knew. I knew there were big bulls to – basically we couldn't get a flight into there and so I had to totally readjust what I thought I was going to do and uh called called some other guys I'd worked for and they said well you know over in this area and a lot of people know of uh the name McGrath as as being a well-known moose area but did some research and I kind of picked what then I saw was a nice river drainage for my kind of gear and then as I talked to the biologist and and stuff I had realized that it also had another limiting factor of the fact you couldn't land any aircraft on the river, whether it was on the water or a gravel bar. And so, to me, being probably from PA, anywhere you can get as far from people and as harder to hunt makes it better hunting because you don't have all the competition and pressure. Yeah. And so that's how I ended up. At that point, I talked to biologists and a trooper, and then we picked that that specific drainage then.
1: Got it. Got it. Now, what did the tags and kind of application process look like as far as, you know, actually getting the tags? Did you have a couple points built up or was this a, you know, no point unit? How does that work up there?
0: So there's certain areas like, I know the TOE management unit, uh, there has to be points unless the guide has a, you know, I forget how they work that, but the guides maybe are allotted some. And so there are some draw units, uh, in Alaska. This one in particular was not, it was an over the counter. And that's one thing, it gets very specific because there's certain areas where it's just natives are allowed to hunt in certain areas that, that, you know, obviously non-residents can, but there's a lot of areas out there that you can get a tag over the counter. Um, and we, you know, we flew in Anchorage, you just go into the, the uh, conservation office and we bought the tags and, I think they were roughly around $800 for just the moose tag and then you had another, maybe like $200 fee for, you know, the general tag or whatever. Got it. Um, so you're talking about around $1,000 maybe.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. But it was a relatively easy process to kind of navigate that and, you know, get yeah. everything you needed.
0: Yep. And on the Alaska, uh, you know, I can't now think of what it is, but the DNR or the wildlife Fishing game, yeah. Fishing game, yeah. If we get on there, it's very, very, again, compared to maybe what I'm used to in the East, it's very in-depth. You can make your own maps. It's To me, it was very easy to decipher what units were you were allowed or not allowed in and detailed maps for people that know your backcountry type of hunting. And so I was able to do that ahead of time, tell everybody what we were going to need and then when you fly in, whether you're going to Fairbanks or Anchorage, uh, those are basically your two options flying in. Then I would recommend to everybody just go into the wildlife office instead of trying to buy it at Walmart or something. Because they're they're helpful and they're going to tell you exactly what you need and make sure you have it.
1: Yeah, I'm sure it's it can be a little bit more complicated than just picking up a deer tag uh, in Ohio or something at the local Walmart. There's probably a little bit more that goes into it.
0: Yeah, definitely. So that, that process was, you know, that's not too bad. Yeah. You know, it comes to getting a pilot, making sure you have the right pilot thing. That's the biggest thing I would tell everybody. Make sure you research if you can kind of get any kind of references, because uh, there's been some nightmares situations with pilots flying people in and out. And, and uh, make sure you have a confident uh, pilot. We use Regal Air Services out of Anchorage, and I would highly recommend them to anybody as long as they can reach where you want to go. but. Um, yeah, you know, there's there's other great ones too. It's just a matter of finding them and talking to them.
1: Got it. Uh Clint, real quick, is it is it kind of windy there? Do you hear is it is it like blowing a little bit? Yeah, is it noisy for you? It's a little Yeah, there we go. I was like I was like, What is that sound? I didn't know if it was like static or what. <laughs> you had the window open.
0: Yeah. Well, uh what's going on is there's a huge storm, so I apologize. Oh no, now it won't affect electricity because i'm fully off the grid here i'm not even hooked into power but Uh, there's a huge storm coming in it looks (laughs) like
1: (laughs) got it yeah um i've seen some of your pictures or what you showed me um yeah you're in a you're in a cabin and um yeah you're running off solar and and a little bit of wind too
0: just solar i have a battery bank in the basement and the solar panels that you know are in the videos and pictures and uh, so far it's worked great um pennsylvania's one of one of places, but it's worked good and it's a matter of uh, you know you still have to be conscious that i have everything else that a normal house would have from freezers to printers and so got it's, it it's pretty, pretty neat
1: got it got it um cool well i still hear a little bit of wind but it's it should be it should be fine um i'm just picking it up a little bit um but uh is it you got that closed all the way Yeah, how's
0: that? Does that sound better?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there there we go. I what's weird is I didn't hear it before.
0: The fan was running the whole time, but it might have been just the way the the storm blown in, that the fan was louder. Yeah. You know, or, can you hear it now or no? Is it good?
1: A li- a little bit, but um I think I think it's it'll be fine. It'll it should be good. Okay. Um well cool. So we were talking about uh, so we talked about the tags and the application and kind of getting set for that. Then you're talking more about logistically of how you're going to get into that area. I mean, um, where you're going, this is something that has to be accessed via plane. Is that pretty typical of a lot of kind of DIY Alaska hunts where you fly into a lake or I guess, what does that look like?
0: Yeah. So uh, the fan is actually my computer. I think it just came on. That a <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, so you can do some drive, especially like if you go north toward the Brooks Range. Um, you can go up the, uh, the Alaska Highway there uh, and and do some hunts up there. Uh, there's definitely a place you could do some drive-in hunts. Um, the, uh, the Denali Highway, uh, running back and forth just south of Fairbanks, there's some decent stuff there. Um, and it, uh, to me, I look at it like it's all your chance. What is your percentage of actually being successful anytime you can drive there, you can take a side by side, uh, you know, probably more people and less of a chance overall on a success rate. Not that you can't, you know, But yeah. that was kind of one reason we picked the, the method we did pick.
1: Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you said you couldn't fly into, or you couldn't land on the river, or whatever. How did how did that work? Where did you end up landing?
0: Yeah. So in that situation, there's uh, there's it's actually part of the Iditarod, and so there was one landing strip that is a as a checkpoint for the Iditarod, and it's obviously right beside the river. So you're allowed to land on that airstrip. Um, we were able to fly in there, um, land there, and then there was a native village downriver that obviously then you're allowed to get out onto, and there was an airstrip. And so it's just in between there, you can't get out. Now, there were lakes and, and some of the very well-known uh, moose areas in the, in the record books. There were, some, there were some big lakes off of the river, uh, about a mile and a half, two miles, that a lot of people fly in and hunt. And so that was kind of one of the things we were aware of to try to maybe get on the fringes of where those people could reach with a four-wheeler around those big lakes. Um, And maybe even push game toward the river. But, uh, you know, they were fairly big landing strips, being able to get out uh, in a larger plane in Navajo, you know, where everybody can fit on the plane plus moose meat Uh, going in. We had to fly in with a beaver, which is what's considered the workhorse of Alaska and, uh, you know, land on a smaller airstrip.
1: Got it, got it. That sounds that's really cool. Uh, talk to us a little bit about maybe your physical preparation going into this. Was this something that you were training pretty good for, knowing that the terrain was going to be rough and you're going to be bringing a lots of gear? Talk to us a little bit about that because I, I know you're you know you're a pretty active guy, uh, you know in your kind of just normal everyday life. But talk to us a little bit maybe about that if you did do some preparation physically for that.
0: Yeah, yeah, And so. I would say that I didn't necessarily do a whole lot of different than my normal lifestyle to prepare for it. Um, You know, I was a wrestler in college and then just try to keep up physically for myself. Um, And I kind of always have gone through stages since college where I go downhill almost in hunting season because I don't have time to work out. Yeah, And so summer I ramp back up. And so I would say it just naturally works out good that in September, I'm probably in some of the best shape throughout the year that I would be in. But that is something that's very important. And, you know, whether it was hauling caribou out or sheep, even I, you know, packed many adult sheep out in Alaska, um, you know, packed elk out in Colorado and every situation, like we talked about different. So I'm not going to say that it's, you can categorize it as one thing, but, Packing moose out the distance that we did was definitely the most physical demanding packing, hunting that I've ever done. Um, And so you definitely, I would say, if you're going to do a hunt where you're going to be shooting moose, possibly not right beside a good transportation, whether it's a four-wheeler or a boat on a lake, um, you definitely want to be in good physical shape and and have – you know, when you're training, have that ability, just like you see nowadays, of carrying a heavy pack. Um, and, and not just, I think a lot of people, when you get into working out now, um, it, you can work out, and you can run, and you can lift heavy weights, but that's not training on unstable ground. And, and moose habitat uh, is some of the most swampy, unstable ground. It's, in my opinion, way worse than even sheep shale, uh, just because it just, it's wet and it's moving and it sucks the energy out of you more than anything that I've experienced. And so I would say definitely need to train in, in that kind of habitat. You know, go to a swamp if you can find it and, and walk on maybe a plowed field where there's all these bunks and stuff. And, uh, you know, train in a different way than just going to a gym and jogging or doing lunges.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes total sense. Makes total sense. And you, and this is, this is an archery hunt, right? So September, um, talk to us a little bit about your gear selection, as far as like maybe your pack your clothing, uh, boots, um, all that, what you're bringing in, maybe that you normally wouldn't for a traditional, maybe Elcon or whatever. Talk to us a little bit about that preparation and what gear you're bringing into this, uh, flying hunt.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so it it uh it was it was either. You could use a rifle or a bow. Uh me and my best friend chose to both bring bows and one rifle. Um the other two gentlemen had two rifles. Um so it was kind of either or. And uh I would recommend anybody probably doing the same thing if they have the ability. Um now I I ended up shooting mine with a bow and, and Justin shot his with a rifle. Um, and so it was kind of a good experience doing both. And, uh, you know, as far as gear, you've, you've got a raft um, and it would be the same thing even if you're landing a lake. I feel like where you, you aren't packing maybe as light as if you're doing a multi-day moving every night type of trip in, in, in Colorado or in the Rockies uh, or even sheep hunting. But you still have to pack like just because of the logistics of getting out there and these, these small planes. And it all, obviously, is all cost-related. If you want to have three planes come in, you can take a lot of stuff. But if, if you don't want to pay that much, you don't. Um, we didn't have any coolers or anything. So we, we were probably on the more extreme side uh, of, of packing less gear. We we ate all freeze-dried mountain house food. Um, you know, we tried to pack as light as we did. And we actually learned that uh, we're going to take less stuff probably this year uh, for that exact reason. Um, but – a lot, a lot of lightweight gear, the same similar stuff you would use for elk cutting. You know, we used uh, the Seek Outside backpacks and TP-10s, as well as some six-site uh, day packs. And uh, we're cutting, cutting weight on gear that way. Um, you know, everything was really lightweight except for the fact that you have this waterproofing element. And so we had all of our gear in big waterproof bags, which aren't the lightest kind of bags then yeah. overall.
1: Yeah, that's. But- yeah. That seems, that seems pretty wild. That's, I mean, it's, it's a lot of, a lot of preparation, a lot of kind of homework. Um, and what, what does the plane ride, what does that kind of run? Is there kind of a ballpark of what you get into as far as costs? Is it per person? Is it per trips in? Um, tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, trips in. And so like, you know, it doesn't matter if you have, you know, for us, it didn't matter if we had the four that we had or, or whatever. Um, it was they, they did it ra- a round trip kind of situation again that's kind of why they had it you know, it was very easy and decipher not every situation is going to be the same but we were flying in with a Beaver which is a smaller plane we barely could get all four of us and our gear in it and then on the way out it was planned so that we could probably carry two moose maybe a moose and a half out uh, in a Navajo so it was a much bigger plane and so they already had that figured out and it was a package deal. I want to say it's about thirty nine hundred dollars. Oh, and wow. so, yeah, we so you split that between four people. So you're each looking at close to a thousand dollars, you know, for the that flight out in the bush and in and out. Now, obviously, if there were four of us and we all had four tags and we shot four moose, we would have had to fly, flown in another bigger plane. Uh, and it probably would have, you know, cost another <laughs> couple of thousand anyway. Yeah. But logistically, you know, there's no way. And even though I'd worked up there uh, and packed moose out with horses, I didn't realize when you don't have horses, there was no way we were going to shoot four moose and oh, get them yeah. out. <laughs> there was just no way even a rash could carry it. And and probably physically, maybe we could have. I would like to say that we could have. But we would have been hurting pretty severely, I would say. So, um, you know, that's something, too, that you always have to plan a, you know, I think having four guys on a trip like that's essential. Um, four plus guys. But you also have to be realistic, and everybody going has to be realistic. That was a situation that came up this year with some people that were maybe going to come, is that if if there's two or, let's say, three moves down, you're going to have to leave. And it's hard for somebody to swallow that tag and bite that off. So you have yeah. to be aware of that.
1: Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting because usually it's – it's just like you know, you're hunting uh, on a whitetail hunt or a western hunt. You just you're there till the time runs out, right? Or you, what you've allotted for as far as the time you've taken off. That would be that would be pretty tough to say. Oh shit, you know, we're into them, but we we just can't take anything else out. That's that's got to be pretty wild.
0: Yeah, and that's what we had some guys, you know, and, and can totally understand that decided not to join us this year just because of that. And that was exactly what they said. Well, holy heck, I can't imagine being, you know, on, on a hunt and it just not running out of time or whatever. And then eating a tag, but to know that you have time left and being like, Hey, we got to leave. And I give the guys credit last year. I mean, uh, you know, those two, we all four bought tags and, uh, we were only three days in the hunt and they had to to say, well, this is it. We're going to have to eat our tag. And, and quit even though we thought we were going to be out there for maybe 12 days. So I give credit and that's something I think everybody needs to be aware of that before they go. Otherwise then you do have, uh, bad relationships. Oh (laughs) yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I'd imagine if you maybe do a a hunt where you can get in a little easier, uh, might not be the same experience, but then you might not have that same, uh, consequence or same kind of, you know, uh, what you're getting into as far as maybe someone not tagging out because of those certain restrictions. So that yeah. would be something to consider as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. If you have, you know, a place where you can land planes, which a lot, a lot of the time you do, and that's why, you know, not people don't go on that river. Uh, but if you can land a plane on the, on the gravel bar and pack out a moose, then you can definitely keep hunting. Yeah. Because uh, it's not a matter of spoiling meat or anything. Um, but it could still, I feel like you could still get into the fact that, Physically, you know, can everybody continue to be hunting too in the same sense? Um, yeah. yeah so, so it's a dual sword. Yeah, for sure.
1: So let's talk about um, actually kind of getting into the hunt itself. We talked about. Um, you know, you selecting an area. Did you do any digital scouting kind of before that? Were you looking at Google Earth and like, hey, this this whole basin looks good, or this area looks good? As far as after you've selected the unit and kind of nailed down your area, where are you're going to get dropped off. What did what did kind of that look like logistically? As far as boots on the ground, landing, and then kind of you know figuring out where you're going to go.
0: Yeah, yeah, I did. I, you know, I was on Google Earth a lot. I used that quite a bit uh, for work and stuff. And I don't know, I, I have Google pro and I'm not the best computer guy, but in that area they had horrible images. (laughs) And so, uh, I was not really able to see what I would have normally wanted to see, honestly. Um, and so I, I use, I, I'm a, I'm kind of a hard map guy anyway, but, uh, I use, um, game planner maps. And so, uh, I had had the owner of, of them make, Ed's his name, I had him make me a, a map of the area, and he can make it he once, and so on one side I had it so it was a topo map, and on the other side it was an aerial with topo lines,
1: and that honestly,
0: and that's what this year, we're going to take probably four of them just because it was so useful. I only had one, and we're all trying to look at it, but that was huge because we could pull it out, and, and then picking the lakes, and it was the same thing. You know, whether you're on a river, you see a lot of river hunts on TV, and that would be the main thing I would tell people, too, to make sure. Um, The moose aren't necessarily always along the river, and especially if it's that kind of river where it's faster. And, you know, you drive a jet boat up and down, they're covering a huge amount of territory on these guided hunts on a river. If you're doing a float hunt, you can't necessarily cover that much distance, and that's why these hunts then became more physical 'Cause we were hiking anywhere. Most actually both moose were just a little over a mile from the river. We were finding these lakes and we I kinda had that vision so the first day we went to a lake, but afterwards we realized we definitely had to get, get to a lake. And so um, you know, knowing to hike in and picking out on those maps where these little lakes were, uh, that was huge to be able to figure out where we wanted to hunt in.
1: Yeah, yeah. So So part of that, so you get dropped off, you're, um, you kind of know these areas, you got your maps, you're thinking the lakes could be a good spot. Um, so you kind of load up all your gear, get all that set, inflate the rafts and then you're just off and going until you kind of hit a spot and then you hike out and maybe hunt for a day or so. And then you're kind of back down the river. How did that work?
0: Yeah. So we pumped everything up and we floated down, um, and and so we would pick a spot. Okay, it looks like on a map we can pull out here, and then we got a quarter mile to. We figured we didn't want to shoot moose over a mile and a half from the river, no matter what. <laughs> um, and so <laughs> yeah. we we picked the, the water body, and you know naturally that's where moose feed. I mean their main food source is going to be that aquatic life, especially that early in the year. And so you know whether it's a beaver dam, uh, a stream coming in that might have beaver dams or little lakes. Um, that's where you kind of want to go to. And that's why you hear of so many hunts and there's so many available where you can do a, do yourself hunt where you just fly into a lake. I mean, that's a very successful way to hunt. This river was a, a faster river. We were actually flowing out of the Alaska range. And so it didn't have that slow moving vegetation that, that the, a lot of the rivers you see on TV have. And so that's why the moose weren't necessarily on the river as much. Mm. Um, so we would get to these spots, and and that was a hard part. picking a campground, you can get out real quick, and uh, you know safely get off of the rafts, But we would pull over and set up a base camp, and then go hunt from there. Like I said, about you know you'd hike a mile, and and another thing in general for moose, um, I you know been fortunate enough to know from working up there, they anywhere where there's a burn that's regrown, is a great area for moose, and so. We keyed on. I knew there were big burns in this area ten years ago. We keyed on the burn areas right away, um, just it. to where we camp and hike into.
1: Got it. So is that where they're feeding a lot? Is that where they're they're bedding? Um, kind of all the above. What's what's the draw for the burn area? Just more cover, um, food, water, shelters. That kind of the whole concept.
0: Yeah, kind of in general, there's, there's a lot more feed. You know, just like out west with elk, you've got a fresher grass coming up, more grass. Um, you, you have a lot more alders and stuff that's more of their winter habitat, young, fresh alders. Anytime there's a burn in Alaska, you burn off. Usually the alders come up right, right away. Um, so that's kind of one of the big factors. Uh, and then, and too, just like out west, you know, you always hear elk getting a big timber. If you can't see the moose, you can't get them either. So, yeah. uh, you know. It's kind of our, you know, my technique of hunting, you can sit and call and hope there's one. Again, you see that a lot of times on TV, going down a river and they call and one shows up at the riverbank. Uh, I prefer to be looking and and then, you know, seek whatever I find. Um, and so that was, you know, if we have a burn area, we can see good. We get to a vantage point and we sit and start glassing. You know, then we have the ability to stalk whatever we see.
1: Yeah. So is that how is that how your day would typically start out? You, you know, float down and then uh, you get off and kind of hike into one of these burn areas or close to a lake, and then you're just glassing, and then and then go from there. What what did that dynamic look like?
0: Yeah, that's what we would we would do. We'd hike in. And you know, pick out a lake, sneak into it. If you could get a van, a higher vantage point, we would get to there and glass um, the lake. I shot my moose in. Didn't have as many vantage points, and so it was more of like they could just show up. And we got we got to the lake. We saw a cow and a calf, and there was just one little bluff that rose about 15 feet. And I was like, well, let's let's just get on that. So we sat on that. Um, and, and the moose came out feeding into the lake so that was maybe a little bit more like the traditional way um where my friend Justin's it was in a more of what I would have thought was an ideal place now uh, we were we were obviously splitting in two groups of two and we were had multiple lakes and we could get on hills that were 100 200 feet higher and glass huge areas I mean we could see three miles and of course there were canyons in between but we could see multiple lakes and be glassing huge areas, which is what I really like and feel comfortable doing, because you have a much better chance to see game, obviously. Um, yeah, and it, it's kind of two different types of hunting, really, that we did all in one trip.
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty cool, because um, yeah, you you get a different get, get a different feel and and get to experience some of those different areas. Um, so you said you were there in September. September is that is that the rut then for them?
0: They were starting, and I guess, you know, just kind of like you hear out west, maybe uh, every, everything seems like it's getting warmer, and so rots are pushing further back, and so on. Um, they were definitely starting, but they probably weren't peaking. Um, we're actually going to go about three days later, not that that's a huge difference, but the three, three days different this year, but mine had followed a cow into the lake and was feeding with her and clearly wanted to stick with her. Um, Justin's uh, we had watched bed down, hiked the whole way to where it was and couldn't find it. And I think it actually just hurt us breaking sticks. And they're such a dominant animal. It stood up and was like ready to fight whatever was near it. And I made a couple, you know, growls or grunts or whatever you want to call them that a moose does with my mouth. And he came at us just like you see on TV with his head swaying and making the whole noise. And and doing the whole show. So he was clearly getting into the rock stage at that point, obviously.
1: Got it. Yeah. So, it. That's cool. Either, you know. Yeah. Again, you've kind of, you kind of experienced both, both aspects of maybe one little bit in rut and the other one, you know, maybe more just a generic spot and stock where you're kind of located it and, and move in. That's, that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. And it was, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, it was one of those things where, you know, you have two different situations. Mine, you know, regardless of whether we picked the lake and, and got on the right block, you know, it was, it was a, a true blessing where he came out because, you know, we all know we're sitting at, you're sitting at a lake that's maybe 10 acres and, you know, one can come out and play on the opposite side or wherever. And it just happened to be lucky for me that he had come out right on a trail that we were on. So I knew what kind of train I was going to have to sneak through. And so that was kind of one of the biggest difference, I, you know, to sit here and say that I didn't get lucky. I'd be crazy. I mean, he came out in the right spot to where I knew the exact trail I needed to take. I mean, it was almost more like a white dog hunt because I just knew exactly where I needed to be, and it was a matter of getting there in time. And so that, you know, mine was a more cliche. It worked out. I snuck in. I think he was probably only about 17 yards, maybe a little less. And, uh, you know, shot him right at the edge of the water. Unfortunately, he ran out in the water and then back and died right at the edge. Um, Whoa. <laughs> yeah, well, two more steps, he would have been out of the water and it would have been the greatest thing ever, but he didn't. So uh, <laughs> he died right on the edge. And, and, and so that was, you know, that was a, a learning thing, cutting something up in the water or half in the water, uh, definitely extremely challenging and then becomes an issue with keeping the meat uh, from spoiling.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What, um, what were the temperatures like while you were there? Were they, you know, cold, uh, you know, twenties, thirties, are they more like forties in the morning and then warm up to 60, 70 during the day? Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. And that's kind of what, that was the main reason we wanted to go a little later too, other than, you know, the rot that's great if it's going on more, but, um, the, the temperature was really warm and, uh, it was, Uh, I I would guess that it was in the the low 70s a couple of times, and the the, the day that Justin had shot his it was. Um, And so we only had one night of frost, and I think it was the night before he shot his we had, and it had to have been just barely frosted. So the temperatures were really warm. Overall, we had sun, so never want to complain about that, that you're dry and high. Uh, But it definitely, uh, definitely was a little warmer than what you'd maybe want to be. But you never know when you're up there. And, and for example, my dad, when, I, when we got the idea to do it, he said, oh, I'm going to do it again. My dad and two brothers and then my dad's best friend planned a do-it-yourself float hunt, and we're about 250 miles from us to the northwest at the same time. And they had rain six days straight and, Whoa. like, in the upper 30s. So they experienced, you know, weather-wise an extremely <laughs> miserable hunt a testing hunt the pilot couldn't even land on the gravel bars um and so two different spectrums at the same time in the same state and I, you know that's something everybody has to be aware of it can go either way quick
1: yeah that's wild i, I remember listening to some of the meat eater podcasts where they hunt on a fog neck island or do some of their alaskan hunts and they just talk about very low visibility the fog grows in and may stay there for two, three days. It's rainy, wet, <laughs> miserable, windy, um, and tough country. So I, 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 can imagine the mental preparedness that, that you would have to get your mindset into or aware of that that could happen. And, uh, you know, you just got to grind it out. So that's, that's pretty crazy stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You got to make the best of it and you got to, you know, realize that going in and, you know, maybe that's why you go back again, but that, You never know. I mean, I I remember the one time sheep hunters I had, it was like that. It snowed like a foot. It was August 9th or 10th. It snowed a foot and couldn't even, I mean, you couldn't even shoot five feet in front of you if we were in the mountains. But, um, you know, these guys are having a heart attack thinking they're not, you know, they're not going to get to hunt. Two days later, it's clear as a bell, and they both shot sheep. So you you never know, and you can't. I guess you can't let yourself get too down when you have a bad time because the good times can come too.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so let's jump back in, uh, cover a little bit more detail on on the actual kind of hunt, or maybe the stock of yours. Um, so you're on this knoll, right? And then you see this cow and a calf, and then this bull just kind of appears and moves in with her, and then you kind of devise a game plan. From there, tell us a little bit about that day and maybe the maybe some of the events leading up to that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we hiked out and we first we were on the other side of the lake. Uh, we were on the, the river side and we saw this cow and a calf. Justin actually saw him. He said, Holy heck, there's, you know, a cow and a calf here. so we watched them and, you know, it was kind of a just like watching deer or elk grain. You can see which way they traveled. And so we kind of actually did a whole scouting. We did a, a loop around that lake, went to another lake and looked at it. And uh, we're like, you know, we, we think by what we're seeing, there was a huge amount of traffic there, huge amount of sign. Let's get back there and uh, get on that knoll and, and just sit there and wait it out and see what we see. And, uh, and we were only there maybe a half an hour, I'm going to say, maybe an hour. And uh, the bull appeared from the direction we came from, and we could just tell that they were traveling there. And again, I mean, you know, it was luck that he came where he was, but there was some theory behind why we picked that. The, the downfall was he was basically downwind. And I think the wind was just missing him by the time the shot took place. And that was what was kind of interesting. I mean, it had to have been really close. I was very nervous at any time. And I told Justin when I went on the stock, I had about a, maybe 150-yard stock. So it wasn't even that far. Uh, but I said, hey, if it looks like it's going to run for any reason, he had the 300 magnets. said, you take <laughs> I'm taking a chance, And you know, the wind was just so horrible for the stock. Um, but I kind of think the, the, the being in a swamp and the, the, the game trails for moose, obviously, it's just like a horse trail. They're super deep. And being along a lake, it was so deep that I actually was able to get in. And I took my rain gear off that I had on just because it was colder um, and, and crawled down the ditch. And it was deep enough that I was almost in the soil. A good portion of the time and so i think that might have had something to do with my wind not really traveling as far as it, it would have mm. and so I, I crawled through this ditch and and again it just was having to be locked that right where he was there were some little spruce trees in between the ditch and the water and i was able to crawl to them then uh get behind the spruce tree and, and basically just be right where i needed to be um and it seemed like it was two hours to me but I was sitting there behind a spruce tree and being that close to that big of an animal uh, he was just a little bit quartered to me and so I kept waiting and waiting and, and I kept thinking he's gonna shoot this thing at any time just thinking I'm not getting there but i I, I waited quite a while and he finally had turned to, to give me you know a good better shot and uh, and so I, I shot him I, I had a compound that i shot him with and uh, I'm not even sure what kind of I was using but it it didn't pass through him. It went in part way. He took about five steps out in the lake. And I thought, Oh, Justin's definitely going to shoot him now. Yeah. Uh, all of a sudden it's like on TV. I mean, it just out of his nose. It was just like a, a sprout of blood. And so Justin said, I knew at that point, yeah, there was no sense of shooting. And, uh, he instantly turned around, ran back in died. So, I mean, it was a quick, quick death. I mean, it was five steps out, cough, and then back in and he was done. gone. And, uh, so it was pretty cool cause he got to witness the whole thing and, uh, you know, it was a quick clean kill, good shot and, and, uh, ended up pretty well.
1: Wow. That's, that's really cool. Um, so talk to us a little bit about the, the pack out. You said he's, he's laying in water and you're having to actually skin him and quarter him right there in the standing water. Was it kind of floating? Were you able to kind of move him a little bit to, to work with him, or tell us, tell us how all that went down
0: yeah no unfortunately, we tried to put ropes on and pull him uh and stuff, and we couldn't budge him um, His one leg had kind of hooked up under you know where the, the the embankment was starting his back leg, I think as he fell and uh so we ended up skinning his whole one side and cutting all that meat off, uh including the the one back strap and then at that point, um we were able to pull the other back leg out of the mud do like a, a pulley cable kind of situation with the tree and uh, pull them the rest of the way out to get the other half. And so the back leg being in the water then while we were cutting it up, uh, you know, was, was, a, was a real mess and not too fun. And and just having the waders, that's another thing. If you're hunting at any time for moose, I would think about anywhere I can think of, you need to have waders along just because you never know if they're going to die there. Um, have waders along and so we're sitting in full waders up to our knees in mud and cutting up a moose and you know for a deer or something that's that quick that's not that big of a deal but it was physically draining because you know you're cutting huge chunks of meat like 20 pound chunks of meat one after another and then trying to get them up to the bank and, and moving through that mud I mean it's just it's like constantly having a whole weight hanging on you and so that made it a whole lot more physical uh, than even you know An elk or anything I mean it just was a total different element so getting it there um, of course then we're getting later in the day so we packed out half of it right then Um, we did two trips with four people um, that evening and then called it and so we got the whole half out but didn't get the head out so you have more still there the next day we went back and I believe we did two more four people trips And then me and Justin did another trip ourselves. So that's how many people, how many trips you're talking, uh, like a mile and a quarter uh, just to get it out. And so that's where, you know, of course, it depends on how you cut everything up. But, you know, that's where it varied so much different than elk or caribou that I've done in the past. Um, You know, you're talking basically to me, it was twice as many trips as one elk um, to get it even out. And so, and we were carrying big, big loads. I mean, hundred pound loads of meat, um, and so it was very draining. One funny thing, and if, if people go they are listening to this, the head is something. I mean, yeah, carrying an elk or whatever is kind of hard. Carrying a moose head out is that's the hardest part by far. And they were all making fun of me because I was like, you know, physically, I, I'm fairly good shape, and I wasn't that tired. <laughs> of everything. I was up. When I was packing a head out. They were all like, "Oh, come on, quit being a baby. This is the easiest part." <laughs> it wasn't. Justin quickly learned when it was his turn to pack his head out that that's the hardest part. So uh, I think in the future maybe you want to be able to tag team that and switch it off because uh, the moose antlers, just the some of them, and then fitting through the alders and stuff, it's very, very draining.
1: Yeah, that that would be pretty tough, I would imagine. And you mentioned a little bit earlier, but there's really no bottom to where you're walking. It's it's like almost like you're walking on like a waterbed or something, right? Where you're 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 losing your momentum, and there's a lot of uh, inefficiency with every step. Um, I would imagine that's that's pretty taxing on your body and just wears you out super quick.
0: Yeah, yeah. And there, you know, there's some dry areas that aren't, and there's some uh, that that are wetter, and so yeah, you have that. And one of the harder things I think could turn into an ugly situation on a hunt like that quick is there's also um, I should know the exact name for them, but in these like semi wet areas or coming out of the wetter areas. uh, Mostly where the water builds up in the winter, there's these clumps of grass and there can be holes that are almost a foot and a half deep that you almost can't see. And these clumps of grass constantly move. And so it's an instant way to twist your ankles. And it's also a way to figure out if your boots are the right boots or not, because if not, they are blister causing things. And so, those have become probably the most hard thing about the moose ring, uh, is those constantly moving, or you're falling in a hole or whatever, and you get in a field of them that can be a quarter mile long, and it's you're looking at the end like holy heck, I'm never going to make it.
1: <laughs> I bet. Um, so, so you get all this meat back to camp. Did, uh, in in the I guess the whole hunt. And what you're dealing with out there in the backcountry? Did you have any close calls? With did you run into any grizzlies, any wolves? Uh, anybody hurt themselves? Um, talk a little bit about the kind of danger factor that maybe you got into on this hunt, if, if there was any.
0: Yeah, no, it was. We were pretty safe overall. I mean, um, as far as uh, during the, the the time of the hunt, um, you know, you're you're working with knives and heavy meat tired you're fatigued just like working out the more fatigue you get more chance of getting hurt and so we were very lucky and none of that happened um didn't have any bear issues even though we had to leave both moose uh not totally packed out overnight had no bear issues then uh but on our way out we had a very interesting uh bear situation um we were floating along. Justin kept saying he wanted to see a bear. Paul and the other guys had seen one. But, uh, and we were floating along, and uh, all of a sudden, I think it was Paul yelled, Hey, there's a grizzly. And a uh, big grizzly was just kind of going along the gravel bars. And, and where we were, there's bison, a ton of bison. And you could tell that the bears and wolves just traveled the river hunting the, probably the, the you know, baby calf bison. Um, and this bear was clearly doing that cause we'd just seen the bison going the other way. But what was interesting to me at working up there, I had had several bluff charges and, you know, seen quite a few grizzlies, but this bear, he's just loping along and he turned and the instant he saw us, it wasn't like he even second guess. He just started after us full speed. And, uh, I would say when he first saw us, he was probably 8,500 yards and he got to the river and hit the river right now and uh they're yelling i wasn't yelling just because the way he reacted like that i grabbed the rifle had the rifle up had the scope on him and uh he hit the water it was funny because i could you could almost just see the deciding factor in him uh as he got into the water it was getting deeper getting to us and uh he got to about his chest height where his neck was starting to go in and I think he. There are two things. That were a fact that a we're in these rafts and now we're sitting higher than him, and then b I'm gonna have to start swimming to attack whatever this is, and so he he reevaluated the situation. He stood up, and uh, I had to I had to cross it right on. And when bears, you know, I think you know everybody that's listening has seen a bear on TV or in person. If, if they're gonna come forward, they fall forward then when they're standing on their hind, hind legs. And if they're going to go the other way, they do kind of an interesting twist. And I was like, if he come forward, I'm going to have to, you know, give yeah. him a shot in front of him and then, you know, or, or decide if I can't cause it, it was only about 25 yards and you might not get a second shot in a bolt. And, uh, luckily he spun and turned the other way and he went up on a bank and started grunting and growling real loud. And you could tell he probably would have liked to have attacked us, but he knew he had a disadvantage. And, uh, so that was quite the experience. Uh, that was definitely a pretty scary one, and, and everybody decided they didn't want to see another grizzly bear
1: again. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can I can see why. Wow, that's that's pretty wild. That's one of the better. I mean, I haven't heard a lot of grizzly encounters. Just you know, um, you know, listen to the Meat Eater podcasts and just hearing stories and TV shows. But um, that's that's pretty legit, man. That's that's close quarters with a big bear that wants to mess you up. That's that's wild. That's cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, he definitely he definitely was not messing around and, and just uh you know was was all about heading right after us.
1: Wow. Wow. Um, so that's cool. So you finished that up, you you guys uh, got another moose down or whatever and and uh it sounds like you had a successful trip. Did the other guys uh, or did you say they were the ones that had to kinda of pack up early, is that right?
0: Yeah, they, they had to, you know, call it uh just because Mostly, you know, at that point, we we maybe could have maybe got another moose in our pack raft, but it, it it could have you know it, it probably would have been more dangerous than yeah. yeah. And so it also was a factor, though, of meat spoiling. You know, it was a situation where, um, you know, my moose, fortunately and unfortunately, I shot it the first day. The weather was so warm and it was wet. You know, the first thing you want to do. And I would say to anybody is you want to dry that meat out. You know, you put it in your, your cheesecloth bags or, you know, whatever kind of meat bags you have, you want to keep it as dry as possible. And, uh, it was, it was a hard, hard to do that because of mine being submerged and then, you know, you're moving around muddy water. There was a lot of bacteria on that back leg stuff. And so that was becoming an issue right away. We had to get it out of there. Um, you know. So we, we were only hunting for three days. In Alaska, you can't hunt the same day you fly. So we flew in. We went to a campsite, waited the next day and hunted. You know, I shot mine around noon, I think. Uh, two days later, uh, you know, he shot his two and a half days later, I guess. And so it was a pretty pretty quick hunt. And then it was a matter of just floating out. And the float was, was about 85 miles. Wow. And so. Yeah, that's a pretty good float, especially when you're not as far in as maybe anticipated. Uh, so, we had to, we made some mir- you know, serious time just floating, getting the heck out at that point. Wow. And, you know, you want to have a satellite phone in case of emergency, but also in case you need to fly out early. And so, we called and said, hey, can we get the plane to come, you know, six days earlier or whatever. <laughs> uh, so, we were able to do that and it you know, worked out
1: wow that's really cool so and then for this this coming year you're already planning to go back is uh are you gonna hunt that same area are you gonna mix things up is there anything you learned from the first trip that you know you're gonna do differently from from what you got coming down the pipe this fall
0: yeah we're gonna you know i think overall we're gonna pack a little lighter uh not a huge amount but a little bit lighter um and hunt the same you know same areas probably do similar to you know same thing overall um the 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 biggest difference i think is that we're gonna you know not necessarily be trying to move we kind of know these core legs we have another one scouted out that we think we could have hit um maybe stay at one campsite more even if even if we shoot one moose. wait and see if we you know see another mature one in that same area I think there's a high population in those areas just because the people can't get there. And, you know, it's just a matter of being patient, uh, you know, having them show up. So four of us again, very similar float. Uh, this year, instead of taking, we took three rafts last year, thinking that two people were in one, two people were in another. Now we had a meat raft. This year, I, I got a 14-foot high side raft that basically all four guys are going to be in gear in the middle so that we have more maneuverable power Man. with the four guys. And then we'll take my little mini me high side raft as the meat raft and doing that because we had an issue with, with two, the, you know, two people last year, uh, fast river, getting stuck on a snag and, you know, losing some major gear, some meat and very close to maybe having, some, you know, possible serious injuries. So we were hoping that that kind of can give us a little bit more options as getting to where we need
1: to be quick yeah it makes total sense well man this is uh this has been a cool story cool cool hunt and interesting for me i eventually want to do it at some point um i don't know when that'll be but i I, i've definitely fired up to hunt moose and i think i would honestly i mean the alaska that's just what you dream of right i mean that's that's just kind of the pinnacle of of moose hunting and um this has been inspiring, man. I, I hope to get up there at some point within the next, I don't know, five years. It would be be something definitely on the bucket list for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely something, you know, hunting up in Alaska and doing those kind of trips. Uh, it's it's something everybody should do, and I think it's much more affordable uh, than, than what most people think, you know, also. I think people count in as this rich guy hunt, and uh, it's, it's not necessarily always that, you know. Got it. Uh, <laughs> you know got it it's, it's more affordable
1: yeah yeah what i mean if uh, real quick before we jump off what what do you think um what you have into that hunt minus you know maybe all the gear and stuff but like are you talking like three four grand somewhere in that neck of the woods by the time you you pay for the plane and and uh the tags and 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 food and kind of some of that stuff
0: yeah yeah, and that's you know that's one of the things. Obviously, where you're flying from initially, but you know the flight from wherever in continental U.S. to the to the bush plane and all that. Um, basically, uh, you know I think you'd you'd probably have uh, around four grand into it without shooting a moose. Um, you know, including tags, the food, the hotel there. You know, the the bush pilot stuff and and everything. Um, and and if you and, and that would include, I think even if you, you were gonna rent a raft and you didn't own it, you know your your price might go up an extra a hundred bucks a person. But you're gonna be around that. And to shoot a moose, you know you're looking at. And again, I'm not counting mounting it, uh, but just doing a European like I did, um, I would say you're looking at another twelve to fifteen hundred dollars. So you might be in it for fifty five hundred bucks. is basically where where wow. I was at. Um, so it's not, you know, if you're going to pay for an hunt, it's not any more than that. Uh, if it's a guided hunt or whatever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah but, for sure. Yeah. yeah, it's good to know. There's a lot of logistics involved, so I can see that. But, you know, at the same time, if it's something you kind of save up for and kind of, you know, put the pieces in place and prepare and kind of get stuff going over three, four years, it, it can make it more manageable, I would see
0: yeah yeah definitely it's just something if you plan ahead it is it is doable opposed to you know i think guided hunter fifteen thousand or more so it's you know it's it's definitely more of a game that, uh, everybody can play if you just plan ahead
1: yeah for sure well cool clint i appreciate you coming on man it's been a great time talking with you glad to uh glad to have you on the show and you have a great rest of the evening all right
0: yeah thanks a lot adam i really appreciate you having me on here and uh, hopefully we cross paths
1: again soon. And there we go. Another episode in the books. Hope you guys enjoyed that one. Thanks again to Clint Stout for coming on the podcast. Really interesting dude. Hope you guys enjoyed that and you're inspired and take that Western hunt, whether it's Alaska or Colorado for elk or Nebraska for mule deer or pronghorn in Wyoming, wherever it is, I hope you go. And I hope, you got a lot of that from Clint as well. Uh, life is short. Go for it. Book the hunt. Buy the gear. Make it happen. Start planning. And, um, you know, you, you won't regret it. So that's really cool. I can't wait to eventually do an Alaskan moose hunt of my own. At some point, they got me jacked, got me pumped. Very, very cool stuff. So thanks again to Clint also big thanks to heads up decoy our latest sponsor for the transition wild podcast definitely go check them out headsupdecoy.com. decoy.com all right that's it i'm gonna wrap this thing up hope you guys are staying motivated you're getting ready for hunting season staying productive thanks again for tuning in and we'll talk to you soon